Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Morning Moments with Maya. Conversations of love and laughter. The show where each week your host, social worker and certified humor professional, Maya Aziz, invites someone who is out there pushing the positive to join her for a heartfelt and often hilarious coffee conversation about love, laughter, leadership, and, well, life. Love and laughter might not cure what ails you, but they sure go a long way to getting you through those tough life moments. So sit back, pour yourself a cup, and get ready to laugh and learn today on Morning Moments. Look for the good. It is all around. Good morning, indeed. This is Maya coming to you live from Montreal this Sunday, October 16th, 2016. And it's kind of an interestingly beautiful morning up here in Montreal today. It's not, uh, it's not sunshiny or warm. It's actually kind of gray and cloudy. But the trees are in full, full color. And for those of you who don't live in four-season climates, it is, it's like a five-year-old hopped up on Oreos, spilled out their box of Crayolas, and just went to town. It is pretty beautiful and beautifully pretty and the perfect kind of cozy morning to sit back with a coffee and have a great conversation. It is also the kind of morning when I look out the windows of the studio that makes me so grateful to call this place home. And gosh, I am such a sucker for my home. I mean, I love to experience new things. I love to travel. I am always planning my next vacation. And as you know, I really love meeting new people. But somehow I am always happiest at home on my worn out living room couch with the familiar way the sun streams into my kitchen and the people that I'm connected to, whether it's my goofy husband and kids who ground me every day or my neighborhood friends that I know I can count on after a hard day at work to go for a walk or grab a coffee or even the cashier, the familiar cashier at the neighborhood grocery store that I see every few days and who has seen my kids grow up. All of this anchors me. And so, to hear about today's guest's unique recent experience is especially fascinating to me. Andrew Tarvin is the world's first humor engineer. He teaches people how to enjoy their jobs more while doing them better. Andrew has worked with thousands of people from over 200 organizations, including Procter & Gamble, GE, and Microsoft, on topics ranging from mastering office communication to humor in the workplace. Combining his background as a project manager at Procter & Gamble and his experience in performing over a thousand shows as an international comedian, Andrew teaches people how to get better results while having more fun. He is a best-selling author, has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, TEDx, and Fast Company, and has delivered talks in 50 states, 18 countries, and three continents. He also says he loves the color orange and is obsessed with milkshakes, a man after my own heart. But what really pulled at my heart was how, on March 1st, 
2015, Andrew decided to add yet another adventure to his eclectic bio when he put all of his belongings in storage and proceeded to spend the next 18 months living out of two carry-on cases and traveling the world as a kind of corporate nomad, going where circumstance, opportunity, and connection took him. But I am going to let him tell you all the details. Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you, Maya. It's it's great to to be on the show. And uh, we have slightly different views right now as you get to see this beautiful fall foliage in Montreal. And I'm in my apartment in New York looking, and my window view is of the side of a building. Quite as exciting as yours, but uh, no, it is a it is certainly a great morning for for conversation and uh, uh, in a beautiful part of the world of you know where you get to see the leaves changing and all of that. It really is. It really is. So, Andrew, I want to start by sort of laying the ground for listeners, and I want to understand how this all came about. How is it that an engineer decides to just abandon all of his worldly possessions and spend a year as what is essentially an urban modern nomad? Yeah, so it's it's surprisingly more logical than than people think. Uh, you know, it wasn't just kind of a willy nilly like let's see what happens. I mean, there's a little <laughs> bit of that with it, but. Uh, you know, kind of as you mentioned in the the bio is that I'm an engineer and I've always been an engineer. So like everything that I think about is, you know, an engineering mindset. And I spent years as a project manager at Procter & Gamble. And so I'm actually relatively risk adverse, you know, Um, but uh, I am a planner and think through a lot. And so basically what happened is I was living in New York City and absolutely loving it. But I knew that I was going to move from my apartment because I was working from home a good amount and uh, it was too loud. And so I was looking at places where I was going to move. I was also considering a a move to the West Coast, maybe to LA or San Francisco, so that I didn't have to deal with the cold weather, Uh, Mm because this was coming off of March when it was a particularly cold uh, winter that previous winter. And um, all of that was combined with the fact for the next six of the next eight weeks, I was going to be traveling for work. I had two different trips over to Europe for some engagements that I was doing, and I had a couple of things here in the United States. And so I was like, I'm, I'm going to find, you know, I'm going to ultimately find an apartment in New York and then not be in it for the next two months, basically. And, uh, you know, the rent for New York is pretty high. The process to find a, an apartment is a bit of a pain. And so I was like, you know, what if I just put my stuff in storage and travel for those two months? And ultimately those two months turned into 18 months. Okay, so there, so there was a bit of a plan, and initially then there was, I guess, going along with that, some expectations. What surprised you then the most about this experience that, you know, in your mind, I guess, began as perhaps a couple of months and ended up being, I think it was almost 18 months, right, that you were wandering the world. What surprised you about the experience of being so rootless for so long? Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, certainly at, at, at the beginning, partly I think having having this fallback idea made it a lot easier. So like, you know, whenever I've made big decisions in my life, whether it was first, you know, deciding to go to Ohio State and then later deciding to take a job at Procter & Gamble and then later taking a job with Procter & Gamble and moving to New York and then later 
leaving P&G to start my own company, like these bigger decisions in my life, I've always asked myself, you know, the first question I've asked myself is what's the worst that could happen? And uh, the worst uh, that could happen is always death. Uh, but after dying, it's, you know, it's usually not so bad. So uh, what's the worst that could happen with, um, you know, being a nomad was that I could hate it. And then I would just ultimately find a spot that I was going to need to find a new apartment anyway. And so it was like the, the two month time frame. Uh, as an initial kind of like test water thing helped because it wasn't like, oh, well, I'm going to do this for 18 months. And so now I'm still 17 months away from that. It was, oh, I'm going to do this for two. We'll feel it out. And maybe it'll go longer. I think it's kind of fun if it goes a little bit longer. But if it doesn't, you know, the worst that can happen is that I just go back. And I think that made the, you know, the initial months easier to say, oh, at any point I can make this decision and actually move to a spot again. And then the second question I ask myself when I have those big decisions is what will I regret more not doing? So, you know, when I'm 60, 70, 80 years old, what will I regret not doing? And in this case, it was, yeah, I would regret not trying it out and seeing what I learned in the process, seeing the interesting places that I could go, because I found that, you know, when you don't have a set place that you're headed to, you do a little bit more research of where's an interesting place that I can go. And so I saw parts of the country that I didn't even know really existed. Uh, in, in other spots in other countries as well. And so I was very more open to, let me check out this spot as a result of a place that I otherwise would never go to. For sure. You, you saw all kinds of things that this offered the opportunity to see that otherwise you never would have seen. Maybe you can just let listeners know a little bit, where did you actually end up going um, during this year and a half? Were you grounded in the state? Uh, I was mostly in the States, but over all told in 18 months, I went to 142 cities in 50 states in 14 countries and on three continents. Uh, I traveled a total of about 159,000 miles, which is the equivalent of about six trips around the globe. Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, and as the engineer side of me is excited the fact that I have all those numbers. One of the, the big posts <laughs> that I did as soon as I finished was I went back and it's like, let me do the numbers. So I know the number of days that I stayed at uh, with each one of my friends in each different types of hotels. I know the, the percentage of miles traveled by car versus plane. Uh, I know that during those 18 months, the longest I stayed in one spot was 18 days. And then also the longest that I traveled every single day, each consecutive day was 17 days in a row. So like the engineer of me is like super excited about having that. <laughs> so when you came back where someone like me would have a, a slideshow of terrible photos, you had spreadsheets and pie graphs. And oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I have, I also have a lot of photos. One of the, the things that I decided to do as I was starting to do, I was like, you know what, there might be a marketing angle to this and I want to, you know, capture the experience in some way. And so one of my ideas was to uh, take a selfie in every single state so that I could put together a video that is, you know, 50 states, 50 selfies with me and every single one of them, which selfies are, you know, interesting to begin with because it's already not like, Hey, look at this cool view. It's look at me looking <laughs> at this cool view. Mm -hmm. Which is, uh, you know, kind of interesting, but um, that created a, a slight problem because I didn't know that I was doing the 50 states, 50 selfies thing uh, when I first started. And so I ended up missing a state. And later in the travels, I, I specifically took a train from New York to Baltimore because I had missed Maryland. 
and I had no self for the state of Maryland. And even though I had been there and I had done a show and all that kind of stuff, I was like, I got to go back and I, you know, spend a day on a train just to uh, get that selfie and go back to New York. <laughs> That's dedication. <laughs> Did you use social media a lot during this year? Um, was that something that helped you remain connected to people? Were you active on social media? Uh, I was for sure. I mean, certainly through Facebook and Facebook Messenger. And like, I, uh, you know, I think part of the things that helped me was having some of the same things that I did even before I started doing it. So like one of my big things is I love puns. So I tweet puns um, almost every single day. And then those go to Facebook and people comment on them and stuff like that. And small things like that, that was a regular kind of consistency from what I was doing before I became a nomad helped. And then certainly being on Facebook and connecting with people and, you know, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn, having a feature to say, Hey, I'm going to be in this city. Who do I know in that area that I can reach out to and at least get a recommendation of where to go or, you know, maybe grab coffee with, or maybe crash at their place while I'm there. So it was certainly helpful both in kind of maintaining relationships, but then also in terms of the planning process of where I was going to go and what I was going to do. It's a, it's a neat tool to have. It's interesting because I've had other conversations with people about uh, social media and how that's changed, how people connect with each other. And there's like real polar opinions about this, right? That some feel that it's helped us connect more with people, either people we don't uh, usually have access to or, um, you know, people that we, it's more difficult to connect with. And then there's this whole pool of people who feel that, in fact, social media makes people feel more isolated because, of course, we're watching everyone else's wonderful life um, and then feeling more alone in our own. But I, I don't know if you had that experience as well. Yeah, I mean, a little bit, because you, you recognize it from your own aspect, because, you know, I would post certain pictures as I go along. And, you know, if I stayed in a fancy hotel room from a client or because uh, of the timing or whatever, you know, you post that picture to Facebook. But what you don't post is like, you know, me sleeping in the Walmart parking lot in my Ford Fiesta <laughs> rental car. Um, right. And so you kind of recognize that, you know, uh, yeah, there's this balance where, we're seeing everyone's highlight reel and, you know, you're living your own and you see the, I don't know, small things of like pictures having of people having like a cookout was like, Oh, well, that's nice. You know? And it's like, Oh, I'm not there in that kind of moment Mm -hmm. for it. And I think the, the larger thing that, you know, you feel, it makes you feel like you miss a little bit, but at the same time, you know, there's an article in the New York times a couple of years ago now that talked about it creates ambient awareness. So even though I wasn't there for, you know, certain events going on either with my friends or that kind of stuff, I still felt in some way that I could be a part of it by looking at the pictures, commenting on it. And then the next time I saw that person, it was kind of like I could ask about a specific thing that I maybe wouldn't know otherwise. And so as an engineer, it certainly makes, you know, small talk and that kind of thing a little bit easier because it's like, oh, okay, well, I have this information. And, and maybe other people are like, well, you could get that information by having a conversation with them. I liked it as kind of a a starting point. So I certainly see the balance of the two, but overall, I mean, technology as a whole and the internet, like the globalization of the the world and that kind of stuff certainly made my travel a lot easier. You know, like I went to uh, Malaysia and uh, did stand up there and I never, I never once got the Malaysian currency. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it looks like. So when I arrived, <laughs> I used my credit card to get a train ticket. And then I used Uber the entire time that I was there for transportation and use my credit card for stuff. 
I had a data plan that like I could work. And so I, I didn't have to like do hand-drawn maps or anything like that. I would just bring it up in Google maps. I could look at TripAdvisor for ideas and all that kind of stuff. So technology as a whole has certainly made it easier. And, and one of the big things was that, uh, so my mom is a little bit of a, a worrier. Uh, she likes to worry some and, um, Technology was a huge help for that because I use Foursquare or Swarm um, as a place to kind of basically check in. And so before I started this, we got her on Foursquare so that she could see when I when and where I was checking in. And that way, you know, if I was traveling and it was the middle of the night, I wouldn't I wouldn't have to worry about like waking her up to say, hey, you know, just landed in Malaysia. But I would check in. So if she woke up and was worried, she would just get on her phone and see, oh, yeah, he checked in recently. He's, you know, still alive because he's doing this stuff. So, you know, it helped me in that way. It helped give her a little bit of sense of security in terms of that I wasn't, you know, kidnapped somewhere. Uh, it, it's true that in that way, technology has changed everything in terms of uh, people traveling. You know, you, what, 20, 30 years ago, as we all went off backpacking around Europe, you know, I think our parents just crossed their fingers and hoped that, you know, three months later we would return. Um, so that's kind of neat that that actually facilitated her ability to also remain connected to you in some way. You mentioned Malaysia, which is um, a hugely different culture than here. And I'm imagining other places that you went were quite different than um, than certainly New York City. Did you, through the experience over this year, uh, find commonalities between people? Absolutely. I think that, you know, I think that's one of the things that's really, you know, changed in kind of my, a little bit of my view about this is, is realizing that, you know, particularly if you look at what's going on in the U.S. right now with the election stuff, it, it seems very divisive in some way, regardless of where you sit on things. It's like a lot about we're different in these ways. Here's why. And is one better yada, yada. And this travel, this trip made me realize that, you know, when you're connecting, when, when you're meeting someone new, you can either have a default mindset of how is this person different than me? Or you can have the mindset of how are we alike? You know, what are our shared interests? What's in common? And, you know, pop culture is something that's big now, whether it was Malaysia or some of my European travels. It's like, if I mentioned Game of Thrones, for the most part, people know what I'm talking about. Right. That's something that we have in common. We can talk about this last season and what happened and what's going to maybe happen. And it's crazy that it's now past the books and all that kind of. And I had those types of conversations with people all around the world. And so, you know, for me, it became a thing of like, how do I find the things that we have in common, whether it was, you know, meeting someone and doing stand up in Malaysia or it was connecting with someone in, you know, a very small town like I did. Uh, 12 state road trip with my brother. So in addition to, to going to all 50 states being a nomad, I wanted to speak or perform in each one as well. Like I wanted to basically be able to kind of say, you know, I've done some something here. And um, so my brother and I did a 12 state road trip in the summer of 2015 because he's a professor at Texas A&M. And so he had the summer off and he was like, yeah, I'll join you for part of it. And it turned into 12 states. And we went to, so I found, I wanted to do something in Iowa. So I found an open mic in a place called Stewart, Iowa, which is population like 1100 or so. Mm -hmm. And it's great because we're, we're driving in and uh, we get off the highway and we pass like the town, welcome to Stewart, Iowa, home to 1200 good eggs and a few bad ones. Um, <laughs> and that was very quaint for a small town. And we drive down and we're following GPS to this location for this open mic that I had found online. 
and uh, we get to the one stop sign of the town, not even a stoplight, but a stop sign. We turn right, and then we're driving kind of away from the very small downtown. And as we're going up and down these hills, and, you know, my brother's kind of asking me, like, where are we going? Where is this place? And I was like, it says, you know, there's a website and everything. It says there's an open mic. It's in the middle of the day. You know, it's like a Sunday at 3 p.m. at this vineyard. And so we're driving along, getting further and further away from what seems to be anything. We turn left onto like a, a one lane road and then Google tells us to turn right onto a dirt road. And my brother's like, you know, if this is like not an actual vineyard, we're turning around and going, right? We're not going to like, I don't want to be some like this serial killer episode or anything like that. <laughs> so we go up this hill and on the left, it's just, a ha- we just see a house and we're like, all right, if that's the place, we're not going, we're not just going to go into some guy's house and it just be like the three of us there. Uh, for this open mic, but we we crest the hill and pass the house that then opens up into this beautiful vineyard, and there was like a cabin that was down there, an outdoor seating area. There was probably like 12 or 15 cars in the parking lot, and we could hear music playing and all that kind of stuff, and so we were very relieved, but we continue down, and then we go in, and we ultimately do this open mic, and they were incredibly kind to people, right? We had no expectations and we connected over, I think one of the things, especially with performing in like an open mics and random shows is that we connected over our love and our passion for performance. And there were musicians there. I did spoken word because I can't sing at all. Um, But there were musicians there that were incredibly talented and this small, you know, Stuart, Iowa in the middle, I've never heard of it, but that were passionate about what they did. There was a Guy, we talked a little bit about Game of Thrones already, but there's a guy that looked like George R.R. R. Martin. And when we, we arrived, he was there with his son and they were singing the Lumineers. And oh. it was like, not what I expect, you know, in Stewart, Iowa, not what I would expect from this person singing on stage. And he was incredible at it. And so it's like we connected then on that kind of shared passion and people got to know us. And like it was, you know, a, a, one of my favorite kind of experiences for performances because the expectations were so different. And it could be so easy for me to say, well, I don't understand this group because I don't look like George R.R. R. Martin or I've never lived in a, a town this small or been to Iowa or, um, you know, any of these things. But instead, we found the things we could connect on as opposed to the things that were different about us. What a great story. And that's going to be a memory you're going to carry with you. So, you know, you had that experience. You've had experiences, as you have said, all over in different communities and realized through this that, in fact, when it comes down to it, we are very similar and we have a lot in common. So then you come back to New York and Mm -hmm. are surrounded by people everywhere who perhaps don't get it. To the same degree, and I think I think about all of the you know the conflict that's going on, not just your country, ours, everywhere, and people's judgment of each other and how divisive things are. How has that experience of coming back to this been for you? How do you sort of reconcile that within yourself? I, I mean, do you have increased feelings of frustration about it? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I think that I mean. You know, it's an interesting thing that certainly being back has, you know, uh, kind of just been an interesting experience of doing 18 months. Because, like, the first couple of months, it was like, all right, this is something that I do, and it's a little bit challenging and that kind of stuff while I was traveling. And then once I got to about month five or six into the journey, it was just like, oh, well, this is what I do, right? This is life. Just as, like, if I was still working at Procter & Gamble, what I did every day was wake up at a specific time and go into the office. 
this was like, oh, well, now what I do is every couple of days I'm planning my next trip and making sure that I have a hotel to stay in or I'm crashing with friends. Or, like this just has become the norm. And I think it's that process of something becoming the norm mm. that gets you. And so coming back from the norm being me wanting to reach out to different people and seeing how unique the, the cultures are and wanting to experience it, and that being the norm for me to coming back to the norm of New York City where the norm is you don't talk to anyone on the subway and there are a lot of people, but you don't like necessarily like a guy contact and I like I just went to, so I got back, moved, and then uh, I still travel a lot for work. So I was just in Texas. Um, my brother is a professor at Texas A&M, as I mentioned. And so I was down there for his birthday, but also guest teaching. And at College Station, it's very weird because like my brother jokes because it was almost like Stepford wise when he went there. Like everyone <laughs> is so polite. Everyone's so nice you make eye contact with people and they'll say howdy to you and all that kind of stuff. Whereas that's so different than New York. And so to have those two dichotomies of like, you know, I'm almost more of the New Yorker now when someone's saying hello to me and I don't know them, it's like, what do you want from me? Um, right. But the norm in college station is to say hello to people, even if you don't know them and be, you know, to do all that where the norm in New York is, I don't think of New Yorkers as rude. I just think that New Yorkers don't care about you in the sense that like, not, not like in a negative way, but in the sense that like, if you're in New York, you're probably very busy. You're headed to something very specific. There are 8 million people. So if you said hello to pe- to every single person that you made eye contact with, that would be your entire day would just be spent saying hello to people. Uh, and so they, you get into this normal mode of just kind of like being in your own world, despite the fact that there are 8 million unique people kind of in the city. And so it's been an interesting experience of saying, you know, what are the things that I'm going to bring back? And not to the sense, like, I'm very much an introvert, so I'm not the type of person that's going to be like, all right, well, what I'm going to bring back is say hello to people and talk to them on the train, but to at least be a little bit more aware and in different settings, be willing to open up a little bit more. And I think to go back to the, to keep the mindset of how are we alike as opposed to how we're different? Because that as a mindset is, you know, it's from our evolution, it's thin slicing, it's a way that we used to be able to very quickly decide, was the rustle in a bush a saber tooth tiger? Or was it a friend playing a joke on us? This person that's different? Are they can we unite together? Are we going to be warring tribes, that kind of stuff. So it comes from, you know, many, many years of having done that previously. And now we live in a, a slightly different world where it's like, I think we have to be more conscious about. We have to make the conscious effort to say, let me find the similarities. Let me find connection in this world. Because, you know, I, I know a lot of people, and I felt it too when I first moved to New York, is that there's so many people here and people are surprised, but you can still feel very alone despite there being 8 million people within, mm-hmm. you know, a 30-mile radius. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's common um, for many people in different kinds of situations where you can, and even if I think about your year, I mean, you, especially you were performing, you were speaking, you were around crowds all the time, you were seeing all kinds of people and meeting all kinds of people. Did you also have that sense of um, increased loneliness as a result because it was so fleeting and then you were moving on to the next place? I don't think so. I mean, I think that um, there is certainly the long haul drain of like, okay, yeah, I want to, to be able to hang out with some of my friends a little bit more consistently was there. I think the, the reason why there wasn't, though, was because of social media and my ability to connect. So I think that, 
you know, as, as I've talked to people about what I've done, you know, there you, people have asked the question of like, you know, what made it possible? What would you recommend if someone else were to do it? That kind of stuff. And for me, having a background in improvisation and certainly the larger picture of humor was incredibly helpful because improv teaches you this yes and mentality. But the other reason why it's like very beneficial is that I'm part of an organization called Comedy Sports produced by CSE Worldwide. And Comedy Sports is a show, it's short form improv comedy, kind of like whose line is it anyway? Uh, but it's played as a sport. But there are 25 cities that have a, a comedy sports team. And so I could reach out on Facebook or that kind of thing. And when I was traveling to that city, so like Provo, Utah, I don't know hardly anyone in Utah, but there's a, a comedy sports there. So I reached out and I got a chop, a, an opportunity to perform there and then meet a bunch of people. And so the balance of I got to meet new people and, and then I could connect back and tell the story to other people that I knew, to friends and kind of that kind of stuff on Facebook, um, balance together to create a little bit of a relationship. And then also right so there are many times where the crowd stuff was like yes I can be up in front of crowd I can meet with some friends but there are times where I want to be on my own like one of my favorite uh favorite dinners from the entire trip was in Chicago and I know probably Chicago from uh people who have gone there for to do improv more people that I know from university or people from P&G and that kind of stuff and I'd been traveling a lot. I'd been seeing a lot of people. My favorite dinner was by myself in Chicago. I went to Luminati's, home of, uh, you know, the famous deep dish pizza in Chicago, and just ate by myself. And it, there was something about that dinner that stood out as, like, I feel very glad that I can go and see people. But in this moment, I'm very happy that I don't have to talk to anyone. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, the introverted side. But I will say, certainly on the, the flip side, that there are times where it's like, you know, when I spent consecutive days in a hotel where it was like, I need more than small talk interaction right now. And that's where the beauty of a telephone call works. There's a couple of friends of mine and a, a, a girl that I was dating through much of it. Um, she was an incredible help of support of like, we could just hop on a Skype call and it felt like I was much more like I was at home or at least with these relationships, even though it was virtual and wasn't quite the same, it at least made those, you know, lonelier moments while I was on the road easier. Again, technology made made such a difference. I, I want to talk more about that because, um, you know, I, I, I'm curious about this notion of, you know, when we see our families every day or people that we love every day, for sure, we sort of take it for granted a little bit. Um, you know, we don't mean to, but it happens. And I'm wondering if... Because you did, I mean, you did spend some time with your brother and I, you did have opportunities to see closer friends and family, but they were perhaps a little bit more spread out or rare. Did it change the nature of those moments when you were with people that you had more um, you know, sustained or loving relationships with? Absolutely. It, I mean, it made me realize when I didn't have as many of those opportunities, it meant that I appreciated them so much more. And uh, there's a phenomenal blog post. Uh, there's a great writer named Tim Urban. He runs a blog called waitbutwhy.com. And it's a great blog about a, a bunch of different topics. And I feel like he and I are similar in some of our ways of thinking. And he has this great post called The Tail End. And in it, he's exploring basically, you know, he's looking at the average lifespan for a human is, say, 75 years old or 80, whatever it is now. But say it's 75 years old. He's saying that he's now mid-30s, and so he's, he visualized 
40 more years and he did it in terms of weeks and then also years, but he's like, think about it in a different way. If you are 35 years old now and the average life expectancy is 75, that means that you have 40 more years, right? Um, on average. And so 40, that's 40 more Super Bowls that you get to watch in the United States. <laughs> that's 40 more New Year's parties that you'll go to. That's 40 more birthdays. That's 40 more, et cetera, right? So you think about that. And then so he goes on to continue to think about it. And he's like, all right, so my parents are 60, right? They're in their early 60s. And so if their life expectancy is also 75. That's now 15 mm-hmm. years that they have, right? And then if you think about, so like he doesn't live where his parents live. I don't live where my parents are. And he's like, I see my parents about twice a year. That means I have 30 more visits mm-hmm. with my parents. And so then he looked at it and he calls it the tail end because he's also like, that means that I've spent 99% of the time that I've spent with my parents has already happened. Because when growing up, you take, you know, you take for granted the fact that you're seeing your parents every single day. They're the ones that you see when you wake up and the ones that you see when you come home. And now that they're living in, you know, different cities, 30 more visits. And so reading that post really changed my perspective because it's so easy with travel. It's so easy as a speaker to kind of be like, ah, well, I was going to go home and see my mom, but this event maybe came up, so maybe I'm going to go and do that, or this networking thing would be good, or even while I'm in Ohio, maybe I'll do some meetings, and instead of going to dinner with my mom, I'll go to this other thing, et cetera, and so reading that post really changed my perspective of like, yeah, if I'm going to be in that situation, right, if I'm going to go to Cincinnati where my mom is, then I want to enjoy that time with her, and so I want to make sure that I'm doing stuff with her, and that the other stuff can fall by the wayside. And that, you know, a couple of hours that we have for, for dinner and hanging out, I'm going to make sure that I'm fully present for, that I'm not checking Facebook and seeing what's going on, that I'm not worried about where I'm going to travel to next, that I'm not, you know, just distracted by whatever that, you know, if I have X number of visits left, I want them to mean something. And that became true of all of my, you know, relationships with people while I was there, is that it became whoever I was there with in the moment, it was much more about being with them as opposed to anything else. And that I think was a huge realization that blog post plus the amount of travel to do it really made me focus on being more present with the people when I'm there. That's kind of life changing. Um, you know, I never thought of it when you broke it down in your wonderful engineer way to figures, <laughs> um, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty powerful stuff. Okay. After this show, I'll be making some phone calls. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's really, uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I how fortunate you are about. to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I was just saying, that's what's impressive about Tim Urban's post. And also when people talk about, you know, I'm very much logic driven logic before emotion, you know, the, the decision to be a nomad again, like I think was somewhat logic driven. And when I was looking at places to live, I went through and made a spreadsheet, uh, you know, and weighted, you know, New York versus San Francisco versus LA and all the things that were important and all that kind of stuff. And so to me, people are sometimes scared of spreadsheets. They're scared of numbers, but at least for me, they're the ones that they're the things that speak to me. Like you could certainly say as people have, you know, your parents aren't going to live forever. So, you know, make sure that you kind of chat with them and have good relationships and do what you can to, to build it. Um, and take advantage of those moments. That's one thing, but it's another moment to say 30 more visits left and that changes your perspective. And so I think that that, you know, that type of thing can certainly, at least it it influences me and my behavior. So true. So true. 
when we talk about, you know, those kinds of relationships, be it with our parents or with other people who are very close to us, the people that we have sustained connections and relationships with, they also um, serve to make us feel or understand where we belong. They sort of help form our identity. And, I, and that, you know, you were talking about where some of these um, notions about connection come from. I mean, I think way back, it was also, I belong to this tribe, not that tribe. That's how I have my identity, etc. Now, here you are, you spend a year and a half kind of not necessarily being in places where you are rooted or where it's your community, how, how did that impact on your feeling of where you belong or where you're meant to be or your identity in this massive world of ours? Yeah, I think that um, I met someone along the way who um, traveled a bit, and I'm trying to remember exactly who it was because I can't come to mind, but I remember someone telling me the phrase that they were a world citizen, and I really like that phrase, right? That they were world citizen, that they, although they were from this place, there was someone in Europe because they were from a, a specific country and then they, um, you know, had moved to a couple of different countries and they had traveled quite a bit. And it's like, I think that's been, you know, I'm from, I was born in the United States, but I want to be considered a world citizen, right? I want to experience other cultures and I want to be aware of them because I think the, the travel, you know, it, it, breaks some stereotypes for you. It also breaks kind of your own perception of yourself and certainly traveling within the United States and even, you know, internationally, I've, I realized the privilege that I've been able to grow up with. Cause like in the United States, I am the majority. I'm a, a straight white male. Uh, and my only minority is that I'm left-handed. <laughs> uh, so like, yeah, I've dealt with like not being able to cut things with scissors because they've been right-handed scissors and I'm left-handed or whatever. Right. So I've never really, I didn't grow up with that type of thing. And so then, so that's one perspective. And then it's like, you go to a different countries, like, especially Asia, like, cause I, I know less about Asia. Um, and so like you go to Malaysia and you're entirely reliant on people there being kind to you because I consider myself a pretty smart guy, but I don't speak Malaysian. I don't speak any other languages besides English. And so you go to a place where English isn't the primary language and suddenly it's like, I'm not as smart as I was because I have <laughs> to rely on the help of other people. They have to find someone that's willing to translate something for me or willing to help things out. And being in that position certainly made me much more empathetic to people when they're here in the United States and I'm in I'm the line behind them in line at the grocery store and they're they're you know struggling through the English language because they're here visiting and it's a second language and so for me it was things like that that made me much more aware about one kind of the the privilege that I have here in the United States and being more empathetic to people uh, other people to, to kind of help them through things if they they have a challenge and not being so short with them or kind of impatient with them or whatever um and realizing like, oh, yeah, that because of just happened to wait where I grew up, I don't want that to just limit my perspective on the world and where I go. And so I want to be this world citizen as well as, you know, this U.S. citizen. And I think that, um, you know, if I look at you're a bit older than millennials, but the millennials really have that notion eh, of, of global citizenship. And I'm a citizen of the world, which I think is wonderful for exactly the reasons that you've spoken about. Um, and perhaps, you know, certain uh, people from certain places like Europeans and Australians who travel a lot, I think, have even more of that sense 
At the same time, many of us, most of us, I'm not sure if it's all of us, crave home, a sense of home. Um, And I don't know if you had that before this experience or not, but I'm curious if your definition of what home is changed or if this experience impacted on that um, idea of what home is for you. Absolutely. I think that, you know, it gave me much more a deeper perspective and appreciation for Luther Vandross's song, A House is Not a Home. Mm. Because that, that's what, it, what, I, what I realized is that a, a home for me isn't, you know, a set of four walls with a roof on it that's in a specific place or whatever. It, home for me is where, you know, I felt most comfortable and where that was in 18 months of travel was at my mom's place in Ohio. I would stay with her a couple of times and then also um, with my girlfriend at the time, right? Which she was. a a great consistent piece of like, that's what I felt like, okay, when I'm here, this feels like home, this, you know, the, the level of comfort that I have. And the same thing with some of my really close friends, like I have a great friend in LA. And when I'd go and stay at his place, it's like, okay, this feels, even though I'm sleeping on a couch, this feels like home. I feel comfortable. I can kind of be my natural self. I don't have to put on any type of like, I don't have to be performing in this moment. Um, I also don't have to like feel like I'm walking on eggshells in this place. And like, I think that's part of what feels like home as well of like, you can, you know, when you're at home, you're not always the like most pristine polished version of yourself Mm -hmm. Um, where it's like, no, I always do the dishes right. As soon as I've eaten off of them. And uh, (laughs) I'm always going to wipe down the counter as I do these things. And if you're staying at an Airbnb or, you know, someone's place that you've never really been to, you're like the best, home version of yourself and secretly if you're in your own apartment it'd be like no those dishes would sit a little bit longer you might throw (laughs) like you know the shoes kind of in the middle of nowhere instead of neatly putting them away or that kind of stuff and so um it's well I guess what it sounds like I'm saying is I don't know maybe home is where you can be a little bit messier where you can be a little bit more of you know you can bring down any any facades and and certainly it was with certain people and relationships that I felt that was like okay this feels very comfortable and um, realizing, you know, especially as an introvert, the real, real is I, realizing the power of relationships and what they have in, in terms of an impact on my life and my happiness and all that kind of stuff was a big realization. And, and we as humans are naturally social creatures. Even, you know, some of us want to have a thousand friends that we get to know very well. I'm much more of a, I want to have a smaller group of friends that I'm connected with than being a nomad gave me a chance to actually go and visit them and, and be more present with them while I was there. Lucky you. And what a great definition of home being, you know, where you can be your natural messy self and be hopefully loved or appreciated and accepted, which is so true. So true, wherever that might be. Um, we're Absolutely. slowly running out of time, Drew, but I want to know, was there a sort of define, like when you look back at this year and a half that you spent, is there a defining memory that you have or one that just really um, sticks out as being vivid or important for you? Uh, there are quite a few, certainly, and I think so. What I've done since kind of doing this, so this is all turning into, um, I'm doing some writing on uh, and turning it into a book called Fifty States, Fifty Stories, which will basically be a story from each state. And the fact that I'm doing that has been hugely helpful because it's allowed me to. I took, you know, I did a daily journal as I was going through the experience. I have Excel sheets of exactly where I went, and I have, you know, my four square history of all the places that I checked in and 
all the different photos from all these different places and stuff. But going back and forcing myself to write about and think through each date of what happened and what I could tell a story about and then ultimately picking one has been a very helpful way to process some of the information. Mm -hmm. And as I was going through, probably the, the strongest moment happened in Maine. And um, in Maine, I was doing an event later that night and I was running around and like each, each state that I went to, I wanted to speaker perform in. I wanted to eat somewhere that was kind of like not a chain restaurant there. And I wanted to like do something, whether it was go to a park or, you know, go to a museum or visit something or whatever. And so in Maine, I went to a, a two lights, uh, it's a state park in off the coast and I was going to an event a little bit later that day. And so I was like, you know, I want to go to this place, but I want to do it efficiently, right? I want to go back to my hotel and that kind of stuff. So I literally ran from spot to spot, right? Like as if I was like in a, in a race running, I was like, okay, well, I got to go to the canyon. Then I got to go to the fire tower and then I got to go out to here. And so I was running from spot to spot and I run and I get to, uh, like I go through this, setting of trees and I get to like the ocean before me and like a huge gust of wind from the ocean kind of just like, blows me and stops me kind of in my tracks um and not because like I'm pretty skinny it wasn't like the wind was so strong that it stopped me like literally <laughs> it was more of a metaphorical uh wind and I just stopped and like I, I like I don't know if it's something about the wind it's kind of like looking in a fire for me if you're like looking out at the ocean and you feel the wind it's there's something kind of mesmerizing about that and it was just like this big realization to stop and like look at this ocean and appreciate it and, you know, don't try to do everything so efficiently, right? I'm always obsessed with efficiency, but realizing that there are times that you shouldn't be efficient. And this was one of them. There was no reason to be efficient about seeing this thing. And that kind of got me thinking. And from there, it started leading to me thinking about like how many people probably live so close to this park that have never been. Right. Cause mm -hmm. there are plenty of parks in New York and there's plenty of parks in Ohio where I grew up that like, I never stopped to like visit because like you said, it becomes like a little bit normal. You take it for granted because it's, you know, always been there. This has always been the norm. And so it was just this beautiful view. It was on rocks that look like petrified wood based on like, I guess how the water had come in or whatever. And, you know, it was just this gorgeous view. And then that got me thinking about, you know, other sites that I haven't seen. And then also I kind of had this experience a little bit later at the Grand Canyon as well. The first time that I went is I had this moment where, cause my dad passed away a couple of years ago and he and I weren't super close to begin with, at least like, you know, growing up, but um, later on in life, we got a little bit closer and I realized like, wow, he never got to see this view of the Atlantic ocean. He never got to see the view of the Grand Canyon. And there are all these things of like, you know, again, kind of going back to the like fleeting thing. And we only have so many years and stuff like that. It was like, I, you know, I need to, I want to be ambitious. I want to be productive. I, there's a lot that I want to accomplish and there's, you know, I continually work and, you know, I feel like I work pretty hard, but also that, you know, I should be, I should be pausing to enjoy the journey, you know, kind of each step of the way because, you know, nothing is guaranteed and I should experience those moments with and, and try to share them with people that I care about. And so, for example, the, that sat in my mind and then later went to the Grand Canyon. I was like, this is a place that my mom would love. And so as soon as I got back from the Grand Canyon, I told my mom, I was like, I want to get I want to go there soon. 
I want to, and she, she jokingly took it the wrong way. I didn't mean it that way. I was like, I want you to go while you can still hike the Grand Canyon and you can do well. And she's now kind of teased me a little bit where she's like, okay, you want me to go before I'm old and decrepit. So thanks for calling me old. <laughs> like, no, but I want you to enjoy it. And so we went earlier this year. We got a chance to go, me and my two other brothers as well. And we hiked and she was also, she like, Likes were a little challenging, and so she was like, I'm glad we went earlier rather than later. So I feel like I was a little bit, you know, vindicated for that. But it was like, okay, if I'm going to see these beautiful things, I want to share it with people that I really care about and make sure that I take the time to do that. Because there's so many things that were like, oh, I'll do that eventually, right? Especially for people that live close to, like, I find that with New York of like, oh, there's so many places. I'll go to, you know, I'll go to the Statue of Liberty eventually. And I've still never been actually to um the base of the statue of liberty or I'll, I'll go to the world trade center the one world tower now eventually and i haven't done it yet so it's like that was like ah no there's you know nothing is guaranteed so maybe be a little bit more proactive about enjoying those things was you know a big moment for me what a great message what a blessing that you were able to have that experience as a family going to the canyon i mean that's wonderful that you did that um and what a great message for all of us that you know you're right we are in such a rush to get i don't know where that we are not present so much of the time and there's so many amazing things going on around us that we just kind of are too busy or too uh, scattered to even realize so thank you for that reminder Drew, sadly, we are running out of time, but I'm curious, you know, whether it it comes on the heels of this experience or otherwise, uh, you spoke about this book that you're working on, and I'm certainly very excited to see that when you're done. Are there other uh, interesting projects coming up for you? Yeah, so the the book is kind of one of the the big ones that uh, certainly I'm focused on, and uh, so the I'm shooting for a release of March 1st. in the new year of 2017, as that will be the two-year anniversary of making the decision to leave. Uh, and then along with that, the exciting thing for that is, like, it's giving me excuse to do some project stuff that I wanted to do. So, for example, uh, I talked about 50 States, 50 Stories, so that'll come out as a video. Or, sorry, 50 Selfies, uh, 50 States, 50 Selfies. So I'll do a video where it's, you know, my same dumb face in every picture, but the background changes <laughs> to interesting views and stuff that I saw um, I'll do certainly probably my favorite picture from each state that I took as well. And so, uh, there'll certainly be a lot of branding and stuff that I'm working on now, which is exciting to kind of like, you know, go through and be able to do. And it's setting myself up to potentially in the long run, I want to do a sequel to it once I get to 50 countries to do 50 countries, mm-hmm. 50 stories. I'm only at 18 total right now. So I'll continue to, you know, that idea of world citizen will do the same thing. Um, so that's big. And then certainly, you know, my big passion, the thing that allowed me to do all of this was, um, my work and that is, you know, that I started my own company and I speak and work with organizations on how to be more effective. And so still continuing to travel and be able to do that and start to drop these stories. in. that's the, the cool thing about being a comedian and being a um, st- storyteller and a speaker is that you get to find these different moments. And even when things are challenging, so like I said, you know, sleeping in a Walmart parking lot in a rental car, or uh, some of the other experiences that, you know, getting stuck in the sand in the desert outside of uh, Los Angeles, uh, you know, in the car and all that kind of stuff, they all become stories that I get to tell. And so I'm excited to kind of start to incorporate those and hopefully, you know, uh, bring some inspiration to some people, give them some actionable items that they can do. And then, you know, I like to tell people that I don't consider myself an inspirational speaker. I don't think that that's what I am, but I hope that I am an aspirational speaker. I hope that through whether it's our conversation a day or 
people seeing me live at an event or whatever it is that they say, oh, that's kind of cool. There's some good learning lessons. And also that I'm not so unique that anyone else couldn't do it, right? That, okay, based on how he's talked about it or based on this realization, I can do that same thing as well. And that's, you know, that's my goal. And that's what I'm excited about to be able to continue to do that. Very exciting. And I would say there were many cool learning lessons in our conversation this morning. And I'm so grateful to have had this chance to talk to you about this. Um, If people want to learn more about your work, Drew, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. The best way to probably, so if they're interested in the humor side of things, the best way to to find out more is to visit my website, humorthatworks.com. Uh, that is the American English version spelling of that, which I know I need to clarify for some British <laughs> English people. Um, so H-U-M-O-R-T-H-A-T-W-O-R-K-S uh, dot com. And then on the, the travel side or the 50 state, the nomad side, that's all on my personal website, drewtarvin.com. Uh, so that's where I'll give updates. You can sign up for a newsletter where I sign up things or uh, at Drew Tarvin or at Humor That Works is where I tweet as well. So if you're interested in puns and one-liners, you can follow me at Drew Tarvin and get that information as well. Great. And I will make sure we include both of those websites uh, in the notes for this show. Drew, I want to wish you well. I want to thank you once again. And I do hope when you end up doing your 50 countries that Canada is perhaps uh, one of those um, and that you come up to the great north to visit us as well. And uh, thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it will absolutely be one. And I think, uh, you know, what you kind of mentioned a little bit early. I'm glad you're already kind of appreciating that fall foliage. And that's something that I need to do this this quarter as well is uh, to take advantage, take a little bit of time, go to upstate New York and enjoy the, the view. And I'd encourage other people to do that is maybe think about, you know, hey, it's a weekend. What's the what's something I can take, you know, 30 minutes later today to just go and appreciate whatever area I happen to be in. Great advice. You heard it here, listeners. Go out, go for a walk, go for a drive. Appreciate what is all around us. Thank you so much, Drew, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Absolutely. Thanks, Maya. Take care. That was Andrew Tarvin. Join us next week as we switch gears a little bit. I am really looking forward to having a conversation with Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at the College of William and Mary and past president of the International Society of Humor Studies, John Morrill, about gender and humor. Are men and women wired differently when it comes to getting their laugh on? Join me to find out. Until then, let me leave you with a message from Albert Einstein, uh, which I think summarizes a little bit our conversation this morning. A human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. This is Maya, and I am out.
Every day feels like Sunday morning. Still got my day job, but I feel so free. Baby, I go anywhere as long as you'll be there. It's just you and me. You shine so bright. You help me see. You're Stop, but I feel so free. 